you look at where the UK was in 2015, it was ahead of Europe in its consumer facing, uh, its consumer oversight of the broadband economy and the EU rules brought it backwards. Today, um, the, uh, the net neutrality policy is costing the UK at least 340 million pounds a year. Welcome to the IAA podcast. My name is Matthew Gilesh. I'm the head of public policy here at the IAA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, what's wrong with net neutrality? Neutrality is the principle that internet service providers should treat all web traffic equally by not blocking, slowing down, or speeding up any type of content or service. Now, its advocates claim it's necessary to maintain an open internet with low barriers to entry for new innovative web services. But a growing chorus of critics claim that these rules are both unnecessary and undermine digital innovation and infrastructure investment. To discuss this topic, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Rosalind Leighton, who is a PhD fellow at Alberg University, Senior Vice President at Strand Consult, and a Senior Contributor at Forbes. Uh, she has an extensive background in, this, in, in tech policy and, in fact, wrote her PhD thesis on net neutrality. So definitely the right person to be speaking to here today. Um, let, let's just get back to basics here, because I think that neutrality is, is quite a, a technical concept. Um, what, what does it mean? What is the best way of kind of explaining what, what net neutrality requires of ISPs, of our internet service providers? Matthew, thank you for this invitation. I'm honored to be with you and thrilled to talk about this topic. And it's important because Ofcom, the UK's telecom regulator, has put it on its agenda um, to, they're looking at the evidence around the world and seeing that the UK could be doing better in broadband internet. It experienced through the pandemic that people were blocked because of the UK's net neutrality rules. Uh, one in five people in the UK are suffering a cost of living crisis, and these rules actually prevented the uh, uh, people who were locked down at home, their children, to study online for free, to access free online education. So that was probably the first um, huge casualty of this policy. Yeah, th 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 this is the zero rating idea that yes, if, if you yes. have to treat all content equally, it means you can't be biased in favor of certain types of content. So uh, an ISP could not, when you run out of your data allowance, continue providing you access to educational content or to government websites or to any other essential services. Even if the ISP wants to give you that service for free, it's not legal for them to do so. I think um, uh, was EE, British Telecom, who raised some specific issues with Ofcom. And I think they were uh, given a bit of a, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and allowed to do it in the short run. But certainly they're not meant to be giving you, unless, I think I think the rules get very complex. So unless they, they give everyone free access to all kinds of resources, so it's not biased in favor of some websites and other ones, but that gets very right. messy. So, well, in any case, we, you know, Ofcom deserves, a, uh, you know, applause and commendation because they, uh, they suspended the rules uh, during the pandemic, as did most countries around the world, because all the governments wanted to be able to get citizens and people, they wanted to get them health uh, information, uh, free online access for education, for work, for other things like that. And that was very important. So we've had an opportunity to examine countries with these rules and countries without these rules. And they've certainly hurt people in the UK. And going forward, Ofcom is proposing to at least make this availability for obvious things like education and social care. But to get back to your question, what, are this, what is this regulation doing? And it's basically going against the consumer um, choice and consumer freedom. Uh, 
people have uh, value things differently. Uh, they may want to see different kinds of content. They may value different applications and services differently, but the rules essentially require all internet data to be priced uniformly and all of it to be treated in traffic uniformly. Now that might sound, for some people, that sounds like equality, but it isn't because we know that there are some things which are socially valuable like health, uh, employment information, uh, news information, things like that. And then there are things that are discretionary like entertainment. So this policy has been promoted by primarily the United States uh, technology companies, uh, entertainment streamers, because they wanted to have their data get a preference uh, in terms of pricing and traffic management. And because they comprise 80% of the data, they have um, you know, been very successful to implement this policy in a number of places under the guise that was consumer friendly, but it has not been consumer friendly. Uh, we can see, for example, the United States uh, had these rules for two years. They removed them because the investment in networks fell and also the programs which were needed, people wanted to have free data programs, uh, they were being blocked. So, mm. you know, so importantly, we've seen that um, the United States did an experiment, it didn't work, so they removed the rules. That's five years ago. The prices have uh, fallen in US, the competition has increased, and the digital divide has closed. Yeah, so, uh, so let's let's unpack the argument for net neutrality. Um, yes, because I because I think it's quite it's quite intellectually interesting. Um, and and I for, for additional background, I, I recently did a paper for the IEA on this topic as well, looking at kind of the, the UK's particular context when it comes to net neutrality, where um, which we can get to a bit more discussion in a moment. But the central argument behind net neutrality, particularly developing out of the US, is you you have these cable American cable providers, and um, they're they're effective monopolist because at least at the time these outcomes are coming around there wasn't a lot of other choice uh, for, for broadband you didn't have mobile broadband in the same way you do today you didn't have people laying fiber you didn't uh, in the US context you didn't have something like open reach where you can get a bunch of different providers using the same copper line you just had one provider and there was this I think quite conceptually consistent concern that um, in the context of their market power where you're the one cable provider you might be tempted to do something nefarious you might be tempted to um if you're aol just boost aol time water content and slow down other content um and ensure that for, for the for the benefit of your business um or you know if you're bt you might want to promote bt services over someone else's kind of have a kind of closed wall um start you know potentially um, start creating different consumer packages where certain things are slowed down. Um, you end up with a, a risk that they could use this for political purposes as well, where an ISP might say, you know, we want to block uh, certain conservative material or progressive material, something like that. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of dystopian theory that these things could happen, but in practice, it's never quite been the case, despite... Sure not right. having net neutrality for net neutrality rules. Yes. Well, so, and you've made so many great points there. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about going back to Tim Wu, who wrote this article in 2003. Remember the prevailing broadband speed was three to six megabits per second. And, you know, today we have gigabit speeds. So this is, the technology is not an issue anymore. Uh, you know, that the, the capability of networks is far greater. But what Tim Wu was getting at was he was concerned that, you know, BT was going to, you know, block BBC or something like that. Now, any economist will tell you, if you do that, you are, you lower the value of your network and your subscribers will not want to subscribe to you and you will just switch to another provider. Now, initially Ofcom and all of the European regulators said, 
there's no reason for this policy because we already have very good competition in Europe. We don't need it. We have other things uh, in place. And so, uh, uh, so they, they resisted this for a long time and felt it was a US problem. Um, however, through the, essentially it was the advocacy of the American tech companies uh, and the various um, parties who they fund, different activists and so on, they succeeded to do it because they realized the policy could be subverted to fulfill their corporate goals, which was essentially to achieve sort of discounts on internet access or free transit. Um, you know, essentially what the policy is doing today, which, you know, those of us in the policy field are showing is it is um, blocking the competition from the upstarts to Google and Netflix and so forth. There are those who would like to use the network capabilities to compete and they're not being able to access the uh, quality of service capabilities or the guaranteed uh, delivery or latency or all the things that modern networks can do today, which they're willing to pay for to improve their delivery, to improve the quality and so on. That's essentially illegal. And so from the point yeah, of view, so, so, of established so, players don't want upstarts to be able to buy that capability because they already have an established position which they, um, you know, which they have, so they don't want to let others into the, uh, you know, into the ecosystem in that way. Yeah. So what's quite intriguing about this is the the ideal of net neutrality, and you know, everyone is treated equally, no matter who you are in terms of a content provider, is has always been a bit mythic because different content providers have had different access to networks. So if you're if you're a Google or an Amazon or uh, any other kind of a Microsoft, a major company, you, you pretty much already have pretty express access um, to, to ISPs, to those networks. Now you're not paying necessarily the, the same amount that you might pay without net neutrality, but you're paying something just to physically locate, maybe co-locate, you know, Netflix famously co-locates a lot of additional infrastructure within ISPs. Um, and, and so they, they get express access because they've got scale, but no one else can really pay the ISPs in the same way that they, or access the same right. way. And I and, think I think you, you unpack, I, I want to unpack the UK's history of this because I think this is quite interesting, which is the UK did not have net neutrality until 2016, but there was this debate um, around 2010, 2011 about whether or not the UK should have net neutrality. Ofcom did an investigation and said, actually, because the UK has so much competition between ISPs because of open reach, because you can, you can choose different providers for your internet, it's not really necessary. The ISPs voluntarily... Um, entered uh, certain codes where they said, no, we're not going to block down our uh, block or slow down our competitors' content. We're going to be treat everyone equally. Um, it was analyzed in 2015 that that system was pretty much 100% successful, that there were no complaints or issues in the UK. And you hear uh, in 2016, the EU comes and says, actually, we think net neutrality is really important and, and, and effectively overrules what the previous policy position had been in the UK and says, we're going to have a, a, an EU-wide net neutrality policy, the UK will now have to follow this. And what's interesting is Ofcom, as you were getting out earlier, is, is in some of the guidance, some of the kind of non-legislative process is, is diverging a bit from how the EU chooses to interpret net neutrality. Um, but I think there's a broader argument to be made about some of the benefits of getting rid of net neutrality altogether or, 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 or powering it back much further through legislative affairs. Um, and, and I think a big argument around this is just the fact that the, the nature of the internet is changing. Um, and and you, the, it's quite importantly, the, the, the way we're going to want to access networks in future will be different. You know, there might be a, a real need to prioritize self-driving car information, for example, or emergency services that all use the internet. I wonder if you can talk a bit to that. What, what could be some of the applications of getting rid of NetHR? What are some of the benefits for innovation for new applications? 
Yes. So there's a lot there. I want to make sure that we uh, we, we cover, um, you know, if you look at where the UK was in 2015, it was ahead of Europe in terms of its um, over, you know, in its consumer facing, uh, its consumer oversight of the broadband economy and the EU rules brought it backwards. So, so I want to get to that. But in terms of your point about next generation um, services, it's something I think that the UK government wants to prioritize going forward when it looks at green tech and advanced manufacturing, creative industries and so on. And today, um, the, uh, the net neutrality policy is costing the UK at least 340 million pounds a year. And this has severely slowed the rollout of 5G networks, which are providing the capability for these next generation industries. You need the, you need the high speed connectivity, the low latency and so forth. And the UK is severely um, uh, slowed in that. In fact, if we look around the world, no leading 5G nation has the sort of rules that the UK has. South Korea, Japan, uh, and, and um, United States and so on that all have rolled out 5G at scale and they're already actioning what we call the titanium economy. This is the small and medium-sized enterprises innovating um, with advanced manufacturing in the former Rust Belt areas. You know, exactly what UK wants to do, leveling up different parts of the country. So that uh, connectivity is not there. It also hurts people in terms of social care, even though UK has extensive telemedicine, the next level of that, which is going to do, uh, you know, remote access, uh, uh, managing a, a bunch of vital signs through the day, remote surgeries and so on, those are not available in the UK because of the lack of 5G. So, so it really does cost financially and uh, socially uh, because of the policy restricts um, the incentive to invest, it restricts the availability to uh, make the offers in the marketplace. And fundamentally, if you talk about 5G, which is a smart network, Net neutrality is sort of regulating a dump pipe. You know, all data is being treated equally and it's being priced equally. So that is at odds with a modern network, which is fast, which is smart, which is efficient, which you need if you want to enable your green technologies, advanced sensing, you want autonomous vehicles, you want all sort of transportation solutions and so on. So, so that is sort of the, the cost here and, and that's quite real. But, but let me just say, importantly, for Ofcom's perspective, there is a broadband stakeholder group, which was made of the various industry players. They developed over a period of years, um, very advanced uh, sort of key performance indicators, which they would publish and use to essentially ensure that the broadband access, the broadband performance was meeting, if not exceeding the, the consumer expectation. Adopting the EU net neutrality rules obliterated that. It essentially got rid of all the things that the EU had, sorry, that the UK had architected that were in the benefit of consumers. And it put a, an EU framework on top of it, which was essentially designed to stop the sort of worst European nations, which went off the rails. And it wasn't designed to get the best performance. It was designed to manage the errant countries who, um, you know, just wanted to do their own thing. And unfortunately, that was not what was best for UK. And I, I think today, seven years hence, the, the proof is in the pudding. And looking back to see that the UK has suffered in investment, it is suffering in network rollout, and it's certainly suffering in the sort of the freedom of people and consumers to choose, you know, the kinds of, uh, of plans that they want. You know, my own research in this, you know, I've studied this in the university for many years. 
most concerns me is now the lack of internet innovation in UK. Um, before these rules were implemented, the UK had a number of companies that were in the top 20 of internet companies globally. None are there in the top 20 today. They've fallen quite low. Uh, and so just because the ability to get the kind of quality of service and the advanced connectivity they need is not allowed to be sold. So innovators don't want to innovate. Broadband providers don't want to sell it. Consumers can't access it. So it's really been it's been really a shame because historically the UK has had some of the leading scientists uh, in internet technologies. It has been an early innovator in all manner of developing um, IP technologies, and you know kind of lost that edge. Now we can look in other fields where you don't have similar regulation, and the US, the UK has been a, quite an important innovator, but has really stagnated in the field of internet innovation. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I say that I think you can think about this in my mind, at least from, from two angles, which is from a consumer angle, we get a, a bit less choice in terms of the kind of broadband we can access. You know, we, we can't, for example, pay extra because we want faster gaming specifically um, on our package or, or we can't pay less because we're, we're willing to accept that some things might be a little bit slower. Um, and, and when it comes to something like uh, the metaverse or uh, in future certain business applications, you, you're really going to need um, the ability to to effectively what economists would consider price discriminate. If you are willing to pay more, there's no reason why somebody shouldn't be able to sell you a slightly better service. Um, and and that, that's kind of from a consumer perspective. But I think that the, the other key point of net neutrality is that um, just like newspapers are traditionally funded by consumers and by advertisers in a two-sided market, you could also have a two-sided market where not only does um, you don't only do consumers pay for broadband, but also there, there's some kind of payment system for the big content providers who who um, put a lot of the the burdens onto network, the, the likes of yeah. um, Netflix. It, it's, it's quite ironic. I mean, if you look at Netflix today, they actually subsidize their low tier service with advertising, and you know they have various tiers. They have a premium service with a high definition, and then a low advertising supported service. That's illegal to do for broadband. And similarly, uh, we, we should have an advertising supported broadband market, but this was precisely the goal of Google and the large um, ad platforms to support the policy because they did not want to allow uh, broadband providers to access the advertising market because they wanted to capture that money for their own platforms. They, if you could imagine how valuable it would be to have advertising supported broadband, you could have, you could essentially be paid to watch uh, uh, shows or something like that, uh, or you you're, you're, have a free broadband connection for that matter. So we essentially sell broadband today like it's sold in 1995, as if email was the only application. And of course, as you just said, the internet has evolved tremendously in terms of the services and content available, but the business models to access the internet are essentially frozen in time because of this misguided EU regulation. So I, I just want to deal with some of the concerns here. So I think some of the critics net neutrality might say, well, this is really just ISPs who want to get more revenue and more profit for themselves. You know, is that really, should that really be the goal of government policy? Um, on top of that, I think there's this, this concern that potentially ISPs become uh, a, a blocker of innovation, that they overcharge for access uh, by the likes of Netflix. Um, inevitably, that could be then passed on to consumers of Netflix, which, you know, we're also consumers of Netflix. Uh, many of us are, or, or similar online applications. The, 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 the downstream effects of, of net neutrality 
um, are actually quite good and positive for innovation and all these kind of terrible things, at least maybe not mass blocking of websites, but there could be a negative impact on consumers. Um, is that as, as something to worry about? So all of the things that you would, would be described in net neutrality, like a predatory pricing or refusal to supply or tying, all of that is garden variety, antitrust and competition law. The UK authorities, Ofcom uh, and the uh, competition authorities already have ample tools to address that if, if those things happen. They, so it, it's not as if this is the only regulation that's on the table. There are dozens of regulations which already regulate this space. And net neutrality is on top of that, putting an additional price control. So that is so that is 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 unnecessary. It's um, it's anti-consumer in the sense that consumers are not allowed to access other things in the market that they would like. But in terms of the ISPs, for them, if you if you actually see the various regulations, the UK has perhaps the lowest mobile price uh, in Europe. Um, it has exceedingly low prices, and the the last trend over 20 years is declining broadband prices, regardless of whether that there's net neutrality rules in the country. This has to do with the competition. It has to do with the, um, you know, also the competition with technology companies, the replacement of traditional revenue with using an online service. For example, we use WhatsApp instead of calling long distance. So there's tremendous competition, which has brought down the price for consumers. So it isn't about the, um, you know, it has really very little to do with the ISPs. It's more about what the innovators need to be able to create the services and then consumers to have the choice and the diversity of plans. If you go to a place like South Africa, there is far more innovation in the kinds of connectivity that you can buy than if you go to UK. So, so that's the sort of, the real question here is how can we make things better for consumers in the UK? There's a cost of living crisis. Ofcom has been looking at how to make, uh, you know, uh, the connectivity more affordable, more accessible, all of those things. And of course, the operators want to do it, but they're restricted because of the because of the net neutrality regulation. Well, so a, a bit of a, a good opportunity here, and of course, it's worth thinking about this as well from the government's perspective as a Brexit opportunity, because the UK now can diverge from. Uh, the EU's net neutrality regulations uh, and and potentially become a, a, a European or world leader um, when it comes to handling these kind of issues. Um, and it's certainly something that uh, hopefully the government will, will be looking at in future. Um, thank you so much, uh, Rosalind, for joining the IA podcast. It's been an, an excellent conversation and um, some really thought-provoking ideas about net neutrality. Um, for those who have been enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or, or to the IEA's YouTube. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA or support our research and publications, please do visit iea.org.uk. Thank you, Matthew.